All right, guys, welcome back. So today I'm chatting with uh, my friend, Dr. Sam Spinelli. So Sam, this is, uh, this is the second time he's been on. If you haven't checked out his earlier podcast, definitely go and check it out. Uh, first off, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Um, why don't you give yourself a little bit of an introduction to maybe some of the listeners who, who don't know who you are? Yeah, so my name is Sam Spinelli. I'm a doctor of physical therapy and a strength and conditioning coach, currently located in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. I like lifting heavy things, talking about lifting heavy things, and making content around lifting heavy things. And then I spend most of my days helping people lift heavy things, uh, either relative to themselves or in the grand scheme of things, and uh, just try to empower people to the best abilities possible. Yeah. To introduce the subject, we're going to be talking a lot about age and adjusting your training with regards to your age. So there's a lot of misconceptions out there about you know, what happens once you hit your 30s and 40s and things like that, what sort of changes you need to make. Uh, so we're going to touch on a lot of those things. And then we're also actually going to talk about training individuals who are actually, you know, a little bit older, kind of in their 50s, 60s, things like that, and come up with some pretty good guidelines some pretty good recommendations and hopefully dispel a lot of myths that seem to be pretty pervasive about, uh, you know, age and, and the things you can't do when as you age. So first on, I, I just want to, I guess, ask right off the bat, like, is pain an, an inevitability, if I can even speak right, as we age? So it's a very interesting one. And the mixed answer is yes and no. The challenge is that pain is a part of life. So inherently, as time goes on, everyone will experience bouts of pain. There's basically, unless you uh, suffer the condition of not experiencing nociception, which is a contributing factor to pain, you will experience pain at some point in your life. And that means as time goes on, you are likely to have some sort of pain. Most adults in North America experience back pain once every two to five years, I believe. And your average um, adult in America will experience shoulder, neck, or hip pain once every five years. So just by inherently living, you're gonna have pain at some point, but in the vast majority of cases, over 80% pain will dissipate in under 12 weeks. So, you know, essentially, you're going to have it at some point. It's going to go away. Life will go on in the majority of situations. But as a general trend, we actually see that pain as a issue across aging populations actually tends to go down around the middle ages. So for individuals as a gross level of population around... I think the peak is around 44. And then from there, it starts to dwindle down to a lower percentage of individuals experiencing pain per year. So basically, you're actually less likely to experience pain as you age, but you'll have pain at some point. So are there any sort of rationales for why that's the case? Yeah, so there's a, a few different ones. Uh, so the first thing is that we see that peak stress is around the age of 44. So if they look at a map of the likelihood of experiencing life stress is basically the measure of it. Um, I think the scale is called global stress rating, GSA. And for the vast majority of people that we see this similar level of scale where from your early twenties, it starts to raise up until you're in your mid forties and then it starts to go down past that. And basically pain follows a similar trajectory. So it's hard to say that it's uh, directly that, but it's a very strong, association mm -hmm. yeah i mean that makes sense as well because isn't there a pretty or like a relative association between like stress and the perception of pain yes yeah, yeah. exactly cool um so a, a lot of the times lifters experience pain and and they attribute it to training and or sorry not training they attribute it to aging and oftentimes they associate it to years of training and just kind of wear and tear and stuff like that so how much of this is age related and how much of it has to do with other factors, even like the one you just mentioned with stress and some other variables that usually we just kind of don't think about or don't associate with, uh, with our pain experience. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a very interesting one because inherently there is some aspect of the statement that's true. And then some aspect of it's that's heavily flawed. So in one way, if you are someone who does do challenging activities of basically any kind, 
you will undergo various physical adaptations, you know, hypertrophy, strength changes, neuromuscular changes, all these kinds of things we desire. And then there is some possible negative aspects from excessively doing anything. It's not inherent to strength training. It's a part of anything. If you go do a parkour activity and you go and jump off a building that you're not able to land proficiently on and you undergo too excessive of amount of impact force, there's going to be some sort of stress that exceeds your capacity and can put some non-desirable adaptations in process. And the same thing could happen if someone is a high-level lifter and constantly smashes really heavy weights and just like ignores any basic principles of progression and adaptation. Like if you just want to try to add five pounds every single week forever, and no matter what it takes to move that weight, you're going to do it, you're going to have some sort of an injury at some point, and then you'll likely not recover to the best degree possible. So, you know, if that happens and you continue to go through life and just keep pushing with that sort of mentality, you're going to undergo some sorts of issues from that. It's hard to say that just like if you're intelligently training and just going through a regular progression and being smart about things as you should, you could get some, you know, grizzles up in the business, like, you know, a little bit of aches and pains in your knees, aches and pains in your elbows, just as could happen from general challenging your body. But that's not unique to an aged individual. Like that, that very commonly happens to people that are 16, 18, 25, like any sort of population that's challenging themselves with physical activity. And so just like I mentioned earlier, like we don't inherently see a huge increase in the amount of pain people experience in different age groups. But what we do actually see a huge amount of difference is, is for people that either don't participate in physical activity and people that do participate in physical activity. And one aspect of that is um, seeing a differentiation between different types of activity. And we actually see that those who regularly participate in resistance training actually have a lower experience of pain across a lot of different things and lower experience of injuries. So there's definitely like this convoluted theory that most people have that like, you know, oh, I messed myself up from training and now I have all these different injuries and I'm going to live the rest of my life in pain. And as a guy who like specializes in fixing that stuff, it's not the case. Like the vast majority of my people that come to me are like these grizzled 35 to 50 year olds that have basically just not trained very intelligently for a duration of time. And then we just get them on course and start to manage stuff more intelligently. And then they're good to go and they get back training really hard and feeling great. And more often than not, it's just about picking a smarter entry point and gradually progressing over time. People just want to constantly be better than they were before or try to be like if you they were a high-performing 20-year-old, they just want to be able to get back to that instantly and they don't take a very smart approach. You said a couple things there that were pretty interesting and I think definitely super relevant to, to the conversation. The first one was... Um, that a lot of the times people assume that their experience is specific to their age. Whereas you mentioned that it's something that 25 year olds experience, 16 year olds experience. And so it's not necessarily indicative of um, an age related issue. And the second thing that you mentioned was um, just regarding like, you know, poorly planned training and, and exposure. And so it's like, okay, well, if you, if you train, you increase your likelihood of injury by training, you know what I mean? So it's like, if you go into a, if you get into a car, you increase your risk of getting into a car accident, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're decreasing your overall potential for, for injury, you know? And, and I think that's something, sorry, that was a little bit, you know, a little bit wordy, but uh, yeah, I think a lot of the times people are like, oh, I got injured because I trained when in reality it's like, well, if you don't train, there's also a lot of really significant downsides. You know, um, if you do sustain an injury, because you don't have a really robust body in general, it's unlikely that you're going to experience the same, you know, speed of recovery. Like I actually, actually, this is kind of a funny little segue. I was walking to work and there's this really sharp turn. That's like a really sharp V where, where people will turn. And I actually got smoked by a car and went through the windshield. Um, I, I was just walking. Right. And, and, uh, but this was back when I was like maybe 295. And so I went through the windshield and then I got out and I was just like, Oh my God, what the fuck? But then I went to work and, you know, like I had back pain for a couple of days, but I was fine, you know? And, and I was just thinking, I was like, man, if I was like 
165 pounds, I would have been just murdered, you know? So, so that was one of the things where being a fat boy was, was on my side for sure. Um, yeah, but, but anyways, I, I, I'm really glad that you kind of made those distinctions. Um, so when it comes to age, how does age impact recovery? And, and I guess actually, could you, could you kind of quantify that as well? Because age obviously is a pretty broad spectrum of, of categories, right? Yeah. So that's a great question. And the simplest answer is that generally age can be looked at as either a chronological thing. So we have this arbitrary unit of time that we, you go by, you know, seconds, minutes, hours, days, years. Um, we're not going to probably go down that weird rabbit hole, but nonetheless, we have this unit of measurement and that's the common way we describe it. But then we also have a biological factor that is more often than not what people are actually relating to. Cause it's not like, okay, I'm 35 and I'm healthy and I'm crushing it versus I'm 35. I haven't consistently exercised. I um, am overweight. I haven't taken very good of my nutrition. I um, don't, you know, sleep very consistently durations of time that I should. So just generally, I'm not in a good health status for my age. So that biologically is actually a worse relative age because you actually will have a lot of different uh, factors that will progress at a higher rate because we have these various different biological um, factors in our system that will progress across time as we mature. And so for the most people, we're actually talking about that because we can, again, look at different ages and see that people will have a relatively different status of their actual health. And most of the time, that's what people are truly concerned with. It's not that, you know, you're 50, 75, whatever it is, we can very easily find lots of different cases of people who are a certain age and are functioning very well, crushing it. Like in Alberta, there's, I don't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. Joe, yeah, he's a great example. I love Joe. I actually competed with him one time. And oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, power surgeon in Edmonton. And um, <laughs> yeah, so it, he's a great example that you can be of a very advanced age and still crush it. And in contrast, we have people that are in their 20s and cannot do the things that he does. And the simple aspect is when we think of age, more often than not, people you know, associate chronological with biological and the relative status of their ability, but they're not directly associated. More often than not, it's it's the ability, your perception of your health, all those things kind of enacted into one. And so we do have a general aspect that as you progress in age, assuming your, your various factors stay consistent, like if you have a consistent sleep, consistent nutrition, consistent training, all those things across time, your recovery will gradually diminish with age. That's just because of biological factors that reduce. Um, it's a very deep rabbit hole discussing like telomeres, mRNA, and DNA replication. But essentially, like your cellular processing does gradually slow down as you get into more advanced age. And for most people, it's not some like we have literally no control over it. So it's just going to happen but it doesn't necessarily provide a distinct constraint. Like most people aren't constrained by that actual factor. Most people are constrained by not sufficiently doing the various things that we have control over your sleep, your nutrition, your progression, the exercise selection that you utilize, all those kinds of things. That's the stuff that most people screw up and then blame their age on instead. Yeah. And, and I've definitely had several run-ins with uh, individuals and, former athletes and things like that, where they'll tell me about how they are experiencing like significant shoulder pain. And they're like, Oh, well, when I was your age, I could do all this stuff, but now I can't cause I'm old. And I'm like, dude, you're like three years older than me. What are you talking about? Like there's this guy and I guess he was a, he was a football player, like a pro football player. Apparently I, I don't really know him, but, um, and he was a pretty strong guy, but uh, yeah, he would tell me all these stories and I'm like, dude, just go lighter. Like you're just pushing hard all the time. That, that's the problem. It's not your age. And he just couldn't, he was just so attached and bought into this idea of, of age that it can become really detrimental. Um, but yeah, that, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, 
I think it's really common because I've heard that quite a bit actually. Um, yeah. And, and so I know you mentioned a little bit about like uh, transcription and like DNA replication and stuff like that, but are there any specific physiological changes that happen, let's say like, you know, in your thirties or even forties that could potentially impair not necessarily recovery, but maybe your ability to adapt uh, to training, like speed, power, um, strength, and, and coordination, things like that. Simplest answer, no. <laughs> um, yeah, we can look across pretty much uh, a lot of different research in various different styles. Uh, I'm a big fan of looking at epidemiological research. So it's basically like what's actually going on in the world. And you can look at the average world records across different weight classes in powerlifting, particularly drug-free powerlifting. And we can see that most individuals that are setting world records aren't in really early ages. And we can also see that for advanced powerlifters, the majority of them are setting high level uh, personal records into their thirties or even early forties. We have individuals like Dave Ricks who are crushing it. We can look at this across other sports too. Um, for a lot of boxers, they'll commonly still be performing at a relatively high level into their mid thirties and early forties. And it's just that as a general trend, we do see that you're, adaptability does start to gradually slow down, but you don't stop having the ability to adapt. It's just like you will have various qualities that do start to um, progressively diminish, particularly things that are higher rates of contraction. So your speed, your power, those things do decrease the likelihood of um, progression. So, you know, like if you were uh, a highly trained sprinter, you're likely not gonna keep setting personal records past the age of like 35 to 40. It's just extremely unlikely. You don't see that happen. In contrast, slower rates of contraction, so like maximal strength, bodybuilding, stuff like that, you got you have a very fine chance of continuing that on to a little bit more advanced age. But for those that have been at a very high level and try to continue to keep beating that, you're gonna hit a peak. In contrast, though, if you're someone that hasn't been at a very high level and you haven't consistently done any of those things, you can make some incredible gains at pretty much any age. I actually pulled up this study. So this is, um, I can send it to you later and you can toss in the show notes if you want, but it's uh, the effects of creatine supplementation and drop set resistance training in untrained aging adults. So it's a paper that I found when I was doing some review on drop sets. It's pretty awesome looking at this because they basically just smashed people with training, like very, very hard training. And they had almost no one. They had one person that dropped out and they said it was because of time constraints, not because of injury. And so they smashed these people for 12 weeks with drop sets. Like we're talking hack squats, lap pull downs, uh, chest press i think and then leg press it was four exercises they would do two sets to absolute failure decrease the load and then smash them some more and they just hit them for 12 weeks three days a week and then they had two groups and the group that did worse made two gains or two kilograms of gains in lean body mass like and these people were like these are geriatric people so these are people past the age of 65 and they gained two kilograms of lean mass in 12 weeks. Like that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And they just, and these were untrained people. So that's the key details. Like now, if you're, if you're highly trained, like if you've been a um, very focused strength athlete up until your forties, you're probably not going to be setting PRs. Like there are the odd person that does that, but it's not super common. You're going to gradually diminish off, but we see lots of cases of people who still keep crushing it into their older ages. So it's a bit more common uh, in slower contraction type activities and we get into the faster ones. That's where we see less and less of adaptation, but it doesn't mean that it stops. That's honestly wild though, because like above 65, seeing two kilograms of muscle or not muscle, but, but lean mass growth in, in 12 weeks, that's honestly like, maybe a little bit slower than what you'd expect from like a pretty dedicated athlete, 
to be honest, which is wild. And yeah, I think that just kind of goes to, to show and like even really, really hammers that point in where it's like age being a relative factor when, when considering like the rate of adaptations, especially if you are newer to lifting and if you haven't reached your peak, like I'm, I'm really glad that you kind of made those different distinctions because I think that's something that a lot of the times people um, don't think about as well. They're, they're not necessarily thinking of that within the context of, you know, hey, this fitness blogger or this YouTuber or whatever, you know, is talking about how he's not seeing the same kind of progress because he's in his 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. Meanwhile, he's got a 20 year history of training, right? And, and a lot of the times, like, that's pretty easy to kind of gloss over sometimes when you're looking at yourself and saying, okay, well, he's slowing down and he's in his 30s and I'm in my 30s right now. And so I should probably expect the same. And then you kind of end up nociboing yourself a little bit. Um, so yeah, I'm really glad that you kind of brought that into, in, into the picture. Um, one thing that I was curious about actually was how age impacts mobility. Yeah, that's a good one. So that is a tricky one because we have various things that contribute to what we call mobility, you know, basically looking at the use of joint range of motion. One thing is that as you age, you do have various different structural changes that do happen across the board. Like all humans will to some degree have what's called osteoarthritis. Like it's just inherently going to happen to some degree. Whether or not you have pain with it is a completely different conversation, but you're going to have these different bone transformations at the structural level as you age. Most people will start to experience some degree of these kinds of changes anywhere from ages of 16 to 25, and it will just progressively increase over that timeline. And for some individuals, the actual development of what we call like osteophytes or this like increase in bone density could limit the actual range of motion that is achievable through a joint. And, and that now a key consideration with that is that we see that tendency of occurring at different joints and not at other ones. So for instance, like it's extremely rare to see this kind of change happen at the ankle. But we do see, for some reason, a lot of people tend to lose range of motion at their ankle as they age. The theory, though, is that it's actually more associated with decreased activity and not um, with any sort of like joint structural change. In contrast, when we look at the knee, we do see that as a tendency with progressive age, a, as, a, as a population level, an increased loss in joint range of motion at the knee. But the amount of loss of range of motion is not usually what's limiting people because more often than not, it's like, you know, your average healthy adults in their thirties and forties has 135 degrees of knee flexion. And as you get into 85, you have 110 degrees. So you lost like 25 degrees, but that's like peak end range. So like maybe you can't squat with your hamstrings touching your calves, but you can get below parallel and that's sort of like the thing is for most people your actual legitimate bony limitations aren't the issue that we generally see at least not in my experience but there are situations where it happens but that's like the smaller amount like that's the rarity in the population more often than not it's decreased ability to actually access that range of motion from either a muscular strength standpoint or a neuromuscular ability and that's basically from inactivity, loss of trying to use that range of motion. Because when they do look at this stuff, most people, even into their more advanced age, can gain back a lot of these different ranges of motion. Like the ankle is a classic one that's commonly measured because of um, fall risk in the elderly population. You see that if someone loses the ability to access range of motion in their ankle, they have an increased likelihood of falling because as you walk, you can't bring your toes up as well. You're more likely to catch on tripping. More, um, more unlikely uh, to have this thing called your ankle reaction as you go to fall, being able to access it to recover your balance. And so then training those qualities by using your ankles actually gains back the ability to go through different ranges of motion in your ankle. So again, as we, we tend to see that around that peak uh, point of pain, that peak point of stress in most people's lives around 44-ish is also the, the, the point at which most people become relatively inactive. And so then from that point on, you basically tend to start seeing less and less ability to access different ranges of motion. Again, this is at like a population level. And if we go to different countries and different 
continents, we don't see the same general trend either. Just by looking at like North America slash Western Europe and then contrasting that with Asia, uh, South America and other countries that tend to do different sort of activities even further into their older ages. Like in India, it's really common for older adults to just sit in the deep squat as they're waiting for the bus, all these kinds of activities. Then those individuals don't have the same changes in loss of range of motion from a non-structural standpoint. They still have the same structural changes, but they are still able to access the available range to, this, uh, to a much better degree than people commonly in North America. Yeah, that, that's an interesting distinction. So I was actually having this conversation with uh, someone today where like something might have a positive effect or a negative effect, but a lot of the times the, the benefits or the drawbacks are kind of taken out of proportion. So I was talking to someone today about occlusion training, right? Because they were like, hey, a lot of people are talking about this. It's blah, 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 you know, buildup of metabolites, cell swelling and all this stuff. And, and it's like, yep, it definitely does all those things. But how much of a difference is it really going to make for hypertrophy? You know, and then also like the associated costs, right, of, of you know, increased fatigue and, and things like that. And it's like, are you going to do a set of 20 with squats with occlusion training? Like, you know, so you're kind of limited to what you can do with it, even though it could be a great tool. Um, I think a lot of the times when, when people have these conversations about mobility and about things like that, the biggest thing that's lacking is, is context, um, especially when you make those parallels of, you know, Yes, it does decrease your ability to access maybe full range of motion, but the degree, I mean, like you said, it was maybe 20 degrees, you know, and, and then also just with frequent activity, you can access like pretty much all of it, right? So I think that's pretty, uh, pretty awesome, the, the body's ability to adapt. Now, are, are there any particular training modalities that you tend to focus on? Uh, this is kind of, this question is shifting a little bit more to, you know, the older population, let's say 50, 55 plus. Um, so any particular training modalities like speed work, power, endurance, anything like that that you find to be very effective in older demographics? Um, and then why would that be the case as well? Yeah, so my particular bias is towards getting them as strong as possible, so heavier lifting-based stuff, than a bias towards power-based training. And the biggest reasons for those two things is that, number one, we see that power is primarily limited uh, for anyone that doesn't have a sufficient strength base by strength, as you get into, you know, more advanced populations, like high level athletes, their power might not be limited by strength, but if we're talking about untrained individuals or those that aren't very trained, usually power and speed, those kind of characteristics are often limited by the strength. So then you want to develop more strength as a base and then actually help them produce that power so that they have the general characteristic of it. The biggest reasons that I think that it's so vital in those populations is number one, sarcopenia, which is a condition of basically muscle loss, is rampant in the populations above 65. And it's actually associated as being like one of the major conditions in North America. There's actually a new diagnosis. Uh, um, uh, I don't remember how they exactly call it sarcopenia, or no, it's not right. Uh, sarcoporosis, it's where they combine sarcopenia and osteoporosis into one. So you have decreased muscle mass, then you get decreased bone mass from it. Osteoporosis? Yeah, something like that, yeah. And um, yeah, so basically by working on strength training, so legitimate challenging heavy lifting, we see a very good re um, reversal and decreased likelihood of sarcopenia and osteoporosis. So those are pretty critical ones. And there's a lot of interesting studies. Uh, we discussed in, uh, a little bit on injury risk before, but there's uh, some good studies from this group in Australia called Lift More. And what they basically do is they take seniors and they have them lift really heavy weights proportionally. Uh, like they'll do like a five by five on back squat with them at 80%. And they have them, yeah, yeah. And they'll have them uh, do back squat, bench press, overhead press, deadlifts, can't remember. It's just, I think it's just four lifts and they'll do it like two or three times a week. And uh, they do it with people that have osteoporosis. They do it with people that have sarcopenia and they do a ton of this stuff. And it's incredible because they have relatively minimal injuries. Like I think in a group of like 80 women, they had one injury and they do it. Uh, I think the one was for a whole year 
which is just fantastic. They actually had a reversal of osteoporosis, which for anyone that looks into the research on osteoporosis, like there's literally almost nothing that does that. There is no medication to reverse it. There is no surgery, nothing like that. Nothing can do that except strength training, which is pretty incredible. And so then one of the key things though, is that when we look at the research on the effectiveness of strength training for osteoporosis or sarcopenia, especially with osteoporosis, is that it has to be heavy and it's gotta be super challenging. Like it can't be, you know, 15 rep sets with this lightweight that someone could do 30 or 50 reps actually with. It's gotta be heavy and challenging. So that's like a, a big shift that I try to do with older populations. Before um, COVID happened, I actually ran a senior popula- uh, a senior fitness class. I would have these people doing five, eight rep maxes on different lifts. And at first they were like, you're crazy, we ain't doing this. And more often than not, when I had them first doing it, they weren't hitting legitimate maxes. But by the time I got them bought in after two, three months of doing it, they were push- pushing very challenging on it. And then in addition, doing some power-based work, which can be the general concept of, you know, fast lifting, it can be jumping, throwing, all sorts of stuff. Tell you what, you get a group of seniors and you let them throw around med balls, they love it. At least in my experience, like I would have them throwing around med balls, seeing who could throw the ball the furthest, seeing who can jump the furthest. It takes them a little while, but if they've been lifting and doing back squats for a while and they start feeling better with those kinds of things, then they're actually down to usually jump. A lot of, if you meet a lot of seniors, they actually don't like jumping at first. But if you start getting them stronger and feeling like they can actually absorb it with their muscles, then they don't usually have an issue. So there's a lot of like basic things that a strength coach would do with someone who is younger and more athletic, but just basically applying it to an older population. And then uh, I don't do a ton of the quote unquote balance training. And the biggest reason that I don't do much of it is that we see most of the research on fall risk demonstrate that if someone does good, consistent resistance training and also power work, they have a huge decrease in fall risk from just that stuff. But I do a little bit of like traditional balance training more to catch the areas that we don't see dressed through strength training and power training. And um, so for anyone that's like a big nerd in the whole world of, you know, different types of adaptations that we have, we have different kinds of things affecting our balance, one of which is called your somatosensory, one is called your vestibular function, and one is called your visual system. So those three things com- uh, work together to create basically like the general sens- uh, ability of balance. And your somatosensory system gets trained quite proficiently with uh, resistance training, but then your vestibular and your visual systems don't necessarily get trained to the full degree with resistance training. So then I just would usually sprinkle in a little bit of work for that to just maximize any sort of possible adaptations I could get. What might that look like? Yeah, so I know that people can't see this, <laughs> but I'll do my best. So uh, some things would be like, you know, eyes closed activities. So we might at the end of the session, after we've already, you know, hit some back squats, hit some bench press, done some throws, we might do a little bit of eyes closed standing with your feet narrow. You might do some eyes closed trying to walk in a straight line some stuff like that, but then also doing some different activities where you're moving your head in different directions. This one that is a little bit hard to explain, but I'll do my best. So if you YouTube VOR training, that's probably the easiest way to actually have any idea what I'm talking about, but you basically find a dot and you look at it and then you start shaking your head and trying to keep your eyes on that dot. And by shaking your head in different directions, it creates, uh, you have these different canals in your ear, in your inner ear. And their job is to respond to the change in head position to feedback into your brain to know where its position is in space. We see that um, over the time of aging, if you don't train that, you can actually lose the responsiveness of it. But by training it, you can get it back. So then basically we'll do stuff like that. There's another one called VOR2 where you move the object in your head at the same time and try to keep visual tracking on it. And you basically just do that in different directions. And you know, they can be going up and down, side to side. So you have these different, you have three different canals that sort of work together cohesively to give you feedback. So then you want to try to stimulate all of them periodically. This is a super random segue, but doing something like that, would that assist in any way at preventing getting knocked out? Like if you're a combat athlete? So I'm going to say no uh, at face value, just because. So 
generally, most of the stuff about concussions is going to uh, demonstrate that there's more to do with neck strength. There's not a ton of research necessarily on it yet. But there's some on neck strength and there's some stuff on various other qualities like hydration status and fatigue levels and stuff like that. But I don't know a lot about uh, inner ear function being associated with it. So I'm going to say no, but I do know that that's often utilized in the post-concussion uh, rehab because we usually do see that people have deficits in those kind of qualities after they have a concussion. Yeah, I just, uh, and, and maybe this is a little bit of a stretch. I just remember like when I was fighting, uh, one of the things that we used to do was you'd stand in the ring and you'd spin around in a circle really, really fast for like 15 seconds and then you'd fight. You know, like the guy's right there, he's standing next to you and then you fight and you got to like be able to move and have like good, um, you got to have like good footwork, be able to slip, be able to hit and have like good precision and accuracy. And so I, I, it just kind of reminded me of that. But anyways, not really relevant, just sort of like <laughs> a, uh, an interesting little tangent. Um, I really like as well how you talked about lifting heavy in, in older demographics, because a lot of the times that is the perception, right? Where you lift heavier and it's like, hey, we want to reduce the risk of injury, especially because you are a little bit more frail. But in essence, by, by limiting their exposure to high threshold sets, then you end up kind of doing them a disservice and actually making them a little bit more fragile. Uh, whereas exposing them to, to heavy weights, I mean, like five by five, 80%, I couldn't do that. Like that's ridiculous. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, and so, I just kind of wanted to piggyback on that. Like what sort of differences would there be or how would you, you know, program things differently? Let's say you were doing a group class. Um, actually, I remember seeing you posting those on Instagram uh, back in the day, but uh, how would you, how would you program that if you had a class that was mixed in terms of the age demographics, you have a couple 25 year olds, you have some middle-aged people, and then you have some guys in, in their sixties or whatever. Um, same program. How would you differentiate it based on, let's say age and ability. Yeah. So off the top of my head, I actually wouldn't. That's the biggest thing is like, so now I might come down to how I personally program, which is something I'll hopefully be able to highlight here. But a big thing would be like, I basically give the same program to everyone regardless of age. Now, when I program, I don't utilize a set weight. I don't utilize a set percentage. Usually more often than not, it's going to be based upon exertion ability. So, um, RPE slash RAR, something along those lines. And at the end of the day, like if you're going to be doing a set of five and you find that you're one or two reps away from failure, you're going to be at a weight that's challenging for you, whatever that may mean inherently. And so I'm probably going to program something along more of those lines. And then when I'm programming in group classes, I'll usually program a range of sets that I want people to do. So I'll usually pick like a number of reps, a relative exertion level, and then a range of um, sets based off of the time that we have. So if we have 15 minutes to do back squats, I'm usually gonna pick, I want people to achieve three to five sets in that time frame at a five rep range with a two to three reps in reserve. And by having that set range, if you're someone that you know pushes a little bit harder and you're legitimately close to that two RIR, you're probably going to want that three to five uh, minute rest break. And so then you might not be able to get as many sets in that time. You might only do three sets after warming up two or three sets. And then if you're a senior individual who is more easily fatigued, because you're just generally not in as good a shape as someone who's younger, well, then you might not get as many sets. And so you might only do two or three. Whereas like if that individual is progressively been in the class for a while and they're getting in gen generally better shape, and even if they're a senior, they might be able to do three or four or five sets. So usually, I, uh, personally, I program more along those lines. And I do have classes that would have a, a big range in age. And people are like, uh, before, before I lived in Kelowna, when I lived in California, I had a group where I would have individuals that were training together. That, and I had these two guys that would train together. And one was 55 around there. Another guy was in his 20s. And they would lift, use the same bar, go back and forth together using the same weight, everything. And it was relatively close in exertion level for them. It was fantastic. It was just that the young guy didn't have as long of a training experience and the older individual did have more of a training experience. So they were able to match up beautifully. And 
So inherently, like, there's not crazy changes. But I think that really comes down to, like, what are your beliefs as a coach? And so that's something that I, I think is commonly an issue for a lot of CrossFit coaches, where if they do have a range of ages and they're not used to customizing it to that specific thing, you do see that generally individuals that are an older age are going to struggle using as much weight as individuals that are younger. And they're also going to generally struggle with keeping the same pace. Those things can be improved, but that's like a, a generalization. So um, if you're accommodating for those things in the way that you prescribe stuff, then you don't have to necessarily put limitations or restrictions on older individuals. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And when people talk about how you would train an enhanced athlete, so someone using drugs versus a natural, like I've had so many people ask me that, not so much anymore, but a long time ago I used to, and they're like, what would you do differently? And I'm like, honestly, nothing. Like, you know, this guy's gonna be able to push harder so he can probably tolerate a little bit more load. So even if the volume is like relatively similar, because he's got higher effort, he's gonna need more time to recover, which kind of ends up balancing things out for the most part. And like, there's a bunch of other little things in there, but that's just one example. And so, yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with, with how you would run um, kind of a program like that. Uh, I yeah, it's, tend like, to For me, it's also a similar conversation with like, when people ask like, oh, I'm a novice, I'm an intermediate and I'm an advanced. It's like- Yeah, yeah, exactly. You still, like you're a human. You respond relatively similar to the consistent kinds of stressors. Like the biggest thing that changes for a lot of those people this goes with older individuals too, is like the type of variation that we might pick based off of the time that you're going to work on practicing a movement. Like if you're a novice, picking a goblet squat is probably superior to a back squat just out of the means of being able to get a training effect with less effort, like less technical um, focus. And we can like, sure, you could have seniors just goblet squat, but it's not inherently better. And the same, yeah, so it's an interesting conversation. So what are some of the strategies that you would use to minimize some of the negative effects of, of aging um, that, or that aging has on performance? Yeah, that's a good one for people that are regularly training. It is hard to deal with that. Like, you know, I am fortunate to not have experienced it yet, but I know that it's going to come at some point in the next decade where, I will not be as responsive to training and I will have to accept I'm going to live forever. <laughs> exactly. But there's going to come a time and I've worked with a lot of people that have. And basically one of the big things is intelligent progression. So accepting that you can't constantly be pushing as hard as you can. You need to have times of deloads. You need to have times of lower stress blocks have blocks of training where you're going to be emphasizing volume versus strength, et cetera, like just intelligent programming. But I think that becomes more and more important as you progressively go towards your peak levels, because you just can't maintain peak performance all the time, especially as you become more proficient and more closer to your ceiling. Then another consideration too is for most people, there's their absolute best ability is going to be again limited more towards the higher rate of contraction stuff. So just keeping in some sort of work that does that as you get towards those older ages or more towards whatever your ability is. And that could just be as simple as trying to back squat faster if you're a strength athlete, if you're a weightlifter, trying to work more on some power movements that way you get a little bit more oomph in them. And for general populations, try and keep more jumping in, more throwing, stuff like that, where you're just like forcing yourself to move faster and trying to move faster. Those things are like, are pretty important, especially as you get more towards the ceiling and trying to maintain that for as long as possible. Because that's again, like the first thing that we tend to see decrease as you get into older ages. Would you ever use overspeed? So you definitely could. I don't think that there's any research on maintaining adaptations of it. I know there's research on utilizing it in different, um, uh, like uh, speed athletes. Uh, it's pretty mixed research on it. Some showing that there are beneficial, some showing that there's not. It seems to be more like less technical athletes tend to benefit from it, and more technical don't because then it compromises their motor patterns. Yeah, but sense. if you were like 
it's squatting. It's not that complicated. Like if we're talking about a strength athlete, like you're, you're going to be fine. You could do some overspeed training. That's basically squat, uh, jumping to be honest. Um, yeah. Whereas if you're like, you know, a sprinter or a thrower, um, there tends to be some yeah changes with your technical abilities with that. That makes sense. And so how would you go about approaching that conversation with your clients? Um, both who, either have this sort of feeling of fragility that, that comes with age and then conversely who are at an age where it's like, okay, buddy, you actually legit do need to just slow down a little because you've got three hip replacements and you've only got one hip. So that's an issue. Yeah. So with the first group, the people that are thinking they're fragile when they're not and more hesitant and pushing and they think that their body is just, piece of crap those are people that i have a conversation with usually you know unfortunately i know a lot of the research so i just like i'll start setting off studies but i just talk about basic simple stuff look at individuals like joe and these other ones who are still crushing into older age like what's limiting them versus you and talking about intelligent progression giving it time sequencing and putting in effort for a consistent period of time and seeing what happens more often than not people are down to at least try especially if you talk about intelligent programming with them it might be a simple aspect of like, you know, scaling where they're at, which is usually the situation. And then they're down to keep trying. Um, I think that I'm a pretty good salesman, so I don't really have that much of an issue. But for the other population, that's the one that I personally struggle with more is where someone wants to keep crushing it and they probably need to pull back on it just because I feel, have a strong feeling I'm going to be that person. And, um, <laughs> I I just like can understand the desire that it's it might not even be an aspect of the performance. Like maybe it's not that you care about that you can that you used to be able to back squat five fifty and now you can only back squat four fifty. It might be the simple aspect of like you love just pushing really hard and training hard and your body just cannot handle that anymore and you need to learn how to pull back. And I can really understand that. And for those people. I try to have a discussion of like reframing the purpose of training that seems to help a little bit. But then the other thing that I try to do is figure out other ways that we can change certain things that you push really hard and go full on with. So for instance, like instead of pushing your back squat to your highest degree possible, just because it might be a little bit more challenging on certain joints, scale back your effort on the back squat, still back squat, still crush it, still have some fun with it but maybe you're going to do a sled push instead and push that sucker as absolutely hard as you can, just because you've got a little bit more wiggle room for different challenges. And are there different ways that we can find an option for you to push really hard and feel that, like that effort level that you want, but not do it on things that you have a tendency to hurt yourself with or are more challenging on different joints for you. Mm -hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense with regards to some of the health issues that uh, people experience that, that are age related. I know you mentioned, um, you know, pretty much everyone is going to get some form of like arthritis, uh, high blood pressure I know is, is usually also associated with advanced age, um, and, and a handful of other things as well. So how are those things impacted by, uh, exercise and resistance training in, in, in particular? Yeah. So I guess, so first thing is like humans weren't originally designed to live past like 75 like it's not a thing like if you look back in the history of time until we started having dedicated medicine and focused efforts towards living past that age we just really didn't do it so we our body just gradually diminishes in certain abilities like you mentioned with the, uh, high blood pressure so basically our various arteries and veins have less responsiveness as we age they don't become or they're not as elastic so we start to have various compromises in our cardiovascular function our kidney function is a really big one that starts to diminish. Like if you go into a um, senior living facility and you were to look at the medical charts and most of the people, almost all of them will probably have a kidney issue. And it's just like something that happens with advanced aging. The thing is that we consistently see that even if those things start to pop up, if you're someone who is physically active and does challenging resistance training, challenging cardiovascular training on a consistent basis, you decrease the impact of those things and you decrease uh, or you push off how soon it usually happens. So instead of it really limiting you at the age of 75, it might not limit you till you are 85, 95, whatever. 
And even if it starts to affect you, it probably doesn't affect you as much as it could have. So those are huge ones. You know, in the case of arthritis, so we all will all start to have signs of arthritis, like it will show up on imaging, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in a pain. It doesn't necessarily mean that's going to affect you. And we consistently see that if you manage a good body weight and you manage a good amount of um, physical activity, we see that that reduces the likelihood of you experiencing the pain and will push it off for longer durations of time. So it's really common, like if you're in the Jerry, uh, gerontology, so basically this, the science of aging world, they call resistance training the fountain of youth. It's like actually what they call it. And it's the simple act of doing this stuff on a consistent basis makes a huge impact on the detriments that people see with aging. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we're coming up on that hour mark and uh, I want to be respectful of your time. So where can, uh, where can people find you? Simplest thing is to track me down on Instagram. I'm doctor or dr.samspinelli. You can find me on YouTube. I've got Citizen Athletics and E3 Rehab. I try to publish you know, more fitness-related content on Citizen Athletics, more rehab-related content on E3 Rehab, both of which lots of information there, um, lots of content on my Instagram, all over the place. Awesome. And do you have any projects you're working on right now? Oh, constantly. Any, always, always. Uh, uh, hopefully there's going to be a brand new Citizen Athletics website coming out uh, later this week. It's been nice. almost a year long project. So uh, hopefully it's going to be a good answer to a lot of different questions, a lot of different concerns, help support people in training at the gym, training at home, challenging options, a wide range of um, variations and solutions for people depending upon what kind of training that they want to do all wrapped into one fun package with a bunch of educational resources inside of it. How many times do you practice up for you jumped on today? <laughs> no, I've, actually, I've actually never talked about the website. This is the first time. Yeah. No, that, that's awesome, man. That's super exciting. I definitely uh, looking forward to checking it out. So definitely make sure you give him a follow. Um, he's got tons of content. We were actually joking before, uh, before we start recording, just like that he does like 50 videos a day. He puts out so much content. It's awesome. Um, I refer, you know, my clients who, who have any issues with pain or anything like that to a lot of his content. So highly recommend it. Uh, all that stuff is going to be included in the show notes. And guys, if you like the podcast, don't be a dick and say that you like it. Leave a five-star review, post a comment, share it, subscribe. And if you don't like it, also don't be a dick, like it, share, subscribe. So anytime you guys do that, it really helps me uh, gain more exposure. I can start buying mics and things like that because right now I'm homeless. I need more money. So um, yeah, Sam, thanks so much for joining me, man. It was awesome.